0: It's Toby Haydox Who's Round, and the moment has been prepared for. Where he's, you know, he's got that great scene where he goes, "I think," and you did ask what I think, and he sort of berates them for the fact that their colony is tatters and and he's channeling almost the William Hartnell element of that. So, is that something that you consciously wanted to, to, to give him?
1: He was wonderful. Uh, I I so loved his performance after after Tom. Uh, I mean, not that I, not that I hated Tom's performance, but I think I think Tom had Tom had done it for seven years and was getting. Uh, well he had a number of problems with, with, with that show and, and Davison was a real actor who played to his fellow actors and it wasn't just about him, it was action and reaction between him and the rest of the cast and he did that so well um, I had very clear ideas I, I, um, there was a sort of myopia that I had about the show in general but very clear ideas about who the doctor was and, and, and what sort of things he could do and say and couldn't do and couldn't say. I mean, that's part of my problem with the, with the present manifestation of the show is that I think that uh, it, it's just kind of boundless. The doctor can do anything. He can make sofas dance in the air and all this stuff. And you think, well, if you have a magical figure who can do everything, then there's no story. There's never any story. Because anything could happen, um, so we had to, you know, we had to make limitations. Um, yes, I mean, I think my be- my best idea about about Davison was to put him in, some, in a box for the first two episodes <laughs> of, of of the first show that he uh, was shown in. Um, I, uh, I I wanted to have this sort of slow reveal of this of this different but the same doctor. I. Yeah, I did have extraordinarily clear ideas about it, uh, about the show in general, um, and and Davison was uh, very good at at, at bringing the, bringing those ideas to life, as far as I was concerned.
0: Well, again, it takes away from that stereotype we have of you as the, you know the, the the science writer, especially you mentioned Valve, Yeah, you got the doctor in the box for the first two episodes, and then he he arrives at this very lyrical place, and I love. Um, Derek Waring as Shardovin because yes. you give him some great lines like I don't go hunting because my natural indolence does not permit me and um, <laughs> and then the doctor says you know do you see something wrong and he says with my eyes no but my philosophy tells me so you know he's got he's got some fantastic lines and he's a great character of mm. this fictional construct that develops free will which is a sort of triumphant very non-sciencey thing isn't it it's a it's a human- he, streak of humanitarian that you have within your writing? As well, well. I, d- I
1: didn't see the dichotomy as being between science and, and, uh, 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 and the hum- human, hum- humanities. Uh, I saw it as the difference between... The dichotomy was between science and magic. And what had gone wrong with the show, I was absolutely clear, um, guided very much by Barry Letts, I mean, this is where we saw eye to eye, is the show had, had become magical. And magic is the complete reverse of science. Um, you, you had this magical sonic screw, screwdriver, which could do anything, and it made no sense. Uh, so, you know, so we got rid of it. Um, but I, I think it, yeah, it, it wasn't just. I mean, the science, the guidance about science came from Barry Letts, and we we saw eye to eye on this. And he liked the fact that I'd been writing for the New Scientist. This kind of endorsed my, my, my scientific... Uh, uh, but for me, the show was... The central thing for me was that the show was a... It was a medieval mystery play. So, although I wasn't anything in the way of a theist at the time more of of one now I suppose Um, I did see the thing as a battle between good and evil with the devil appearing on the left hand side of the stage and God appearing on the right hand side of the stage and the conflict happening between them and that was my kind of guiding light through the thing and I think probably philosophy rather than pure science was what what saw me through that season that, that I did and and maybe that's what you you, you see in in Frontios and and Alba as you talk about it very very generously and kindly thank you appreciate oh, it. my was my
0: childhood you know and uh, <laughs> uh, somebody said I'm still trying to get back to there um, but so what, what about some of the other, because uh, I promised you we would talk less about Doctor Who more about other things, um, but what about some of the other television that you did? How does that compare in terms of you know enjoyable experience or, or re- reward of the work? Because Doctor Who is, is unique in terms of yeah. its demands, but also in terms of the scope of things that you can write about. So what about some of the more um, straightforward, if you like, things that you, you did for television?
1: Well, the only other thing I can remember that I did for... I did quite a bit for radio, but the only other thing I can remember I did for television was for Thames Television, something called Harriet's Back in Town. Which which Joy Harrison was in. Which Joy Harrison was in, yes. Yes. Um, Harriet's Back in Town. Well, that was my my first big break in television, and uh, uh, it was wonderful to do that. (laughs) I... I, uh, I, I might have gone on doing it to this day, uh, writing in television. I I did totally screw up. There was um, there was a new a new script editor came in, and he didn't like what I had done. I'd I got very cocky in my scripts, and I think in one one of the one of the Harriets Back in Town scripts, I had written a little um, note on the front page saying in common with the finest works of shakespeare uh, this this script has no telephone conversations because i was a bit a bit fed up with the telephone conversations that were coming into the show which i thought were very very untelevisual and 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 anti-dramatic and I thought that if you are going to have a scene between two people, if you can possibly put those two people together in the same room, you're going to get a much better scene. than. So I was very proud of having done So I wrote this note on the first page. And I think it, it totally <laughs> off the, the new script editor, who then took my script and rewrote it from top to bottom. Much as I had done was, was to do subsequently with Doctor Who. Um, and I found myself very resentful about this. And uh, when I went in, they were very sweet, and as people are in television, they said, look, Chris, I mean, you've read the, you've read the new, you've read the rewrite, and obviously if there are any, you know, we're in rehearsal now, it's a bit late, but if there's anything you want to change, do let us know. And I said, I said no, uh, maybe just a couple of words. And they said, oh, yes, really, what? And I said, well, the, the two words on the front page that say, by Chris Bidmead, <laughs> <laughs> can we change that? <laughs> so we did, and uh, that was the end of my career with Thames.
0: <laughs> but in going from, from television, as you know, took, to writing factual, it's essentially factual stuff, isn't it? Well, for the new sound do, do you, it's a different form of expression. Isn't it? I mean, there's a different. So, so do you again? Having gone from acting to, to writing to now a different sphere of writing, do you miss that slightly more? Um, well, the fact that you're not you, you're not fettered by actually having to be accurate, you know, in your writing. Oh, I see. Right, but, I mean, you know, you you have certain rules that you have to follow.
1: Oh, but isn't that true of all writing? Uh, I mean, I. I loved the fact that uh, with Doctor Who you, you could sit around all day uh, um, having brainstorming sessions with writers, grown-up men um, talking, about <laughs> talking about creatures from, from outer space. Uh, that was wonderful. But I, I missed the discipline of... of that's why, I, one reason why I suppose I clung to the, the science, or at least the extrapolation of science, is that your writing has got to have... It's got to have. It's got to be anchored in reality, hasn't it? Uh, I'm rem- I'm doing a thing at the moment about Edison and um, and H.G. Wells, and um, a- and the um, electric chair, and this guy Kemmler, who is the first victim of the electric chair, and the fact that he murders his his uh, common law wife Tilly. And I'm trying to write a, a stage scene between Tilly and Kemmler just before the event. And I, I, I wrote the scene and it was, it was okay. And you think, yes, but that's an okay scene. You know, that's like, oh God, I watched a terrible film the other day which had got innumerable okay scenes in, you know, which kind of move the plot along nicely and develop the characters. And you think, yeah, but so what? And I, I thought this scene needs some, it needs more reality in it. So I went went on the web and researched Kemler like crazy and I discovered stuff about Kemler and Tilly that I hadn't known. And to stick that into the scene, suddenly the whole thing focuses and gels in a way that it hadn't before. And I think you're always looking for that, aren't you? As I mean, you're a writer, you know this. You're always writing on multiple levels, I hope. Where really really bright interested people can find stuff in it, but also people who are maybe less engaged and less brainy can also enjoy it. Surely that's what writing but is about. I,
0: I think. think that's the key to Doctor Who because it's a programme that famous quote is that t- uh, children and adults adore. You know mm. that, that mm. Uh, you know yes kids kids watch adventure and then when those kids grow up they see the subtext they Mm. see that it's a satire on the tax system or you know whatever i never
1: thought thought i was writing for children Uh, although you know obviously part of the audience but uh, what was never a children's show for me
0: yeah i think the best doctor is written to be suitable for children yeah not written for children
1: yeah um
0: uh, and so do you do you quite like engaging um on the internet do you quite like engaging in uh, sort of debate, if you like, even though you're constricted by you know, 140 characters.
1: Oh, but that's the key to the whole thing. Um, the 140 characters are absolutely crucial. Uh, you. I mean, as a writer, you're always coming up with ideas and, and you, you want to bounce them off people very, very often. And if. My feeling is that if the idea can't be expressed in 140 characters, it's probably not worth expressing. That are really good ideas, you can pack into 140 characters. So, uh, when, when you talk about debates, that's a different issue. I mean, it's very, it is actually quite difficult to have a debate mm-hmm. on, on Twitter, I find. But to have a, you know, you're shaving in the morning and you suddenly you have a thought and you think, and my first thought then is, how would I tweet that? And in order to try to turn it into a tweet, you have to really think what you are thinking. And it's a fantastic discipline. I mean, do you not feel this?
0: Yes, the difficulty I have with it is that I find it very... Because of the anonymity uh, of, of, of um, the internet and Twitter, you you know, there's the, the trolling the trolling element and the keyboard warrior element where you can get in debates with people who are actually there just to make a good point, which is very, very easy to do and and can be very irritating and time-wasting. I had a very long debate with a guy who, I, when I finally checked his profile... Um, said, uh, uh, I'm 100% anti-Islam and if you don't like... And I thought, well, some, <laughs> some people aren't even worth 140 characters, you know, and I've given this guy several, you know, and and sometimes it, it, it can be a haven for sort of professional it, except they don't earn any money, ir- irritants. And I just find that a waste of everybody's time. You know, people who just... It's very easy to make a glib point to annoy people, but yeah. I'm not sure it's worthwhile.
1: No, absolutely, but I think we're talking about two different things here. I think and certainly you, you, do, you can get drawn into debates on on Twitter, and some of them can actually work quite nicely. Uh, I was thinking more of the tweet as a as a standalone, uh, some, uh, either as a response to something that somebody's written or a or, or complete thought out of the blue. And if you can make a haiku out of it or something similar, you know, and and actually s- say in one hundred and forty characters something that, and you'll know this because other people will retweet if it works. Um, something that strikes a chord in other people. Something maybe fresh and original, or maybe just a, a fresh way of something saying something that's already been said, or just a new thought. It's, it's just a wonderful discipline. And I love the, also the, the disposability of it. I know, I know that, in fact, this stuff does linger forever. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, these are just things that you throw in... And And uh, and are gone, uh, written on on the sand until the tide comes in, and then are forgotten. And uh, as as a mode of writing, I absolutely love that. It's such a wonderful antidote to the pretentiousness that I think I had as a as a young writer, where one was writing for posterity, of course, the whole time.
0: (laughs) well, okay. What about we've dealt with the past and with the disposable nature of the present? What about the future? Are there things that you um, still feel the need you would like to do, or experiences you'd like to have, things that you haven't done?
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm really suckered into the idea of writing screenplays, <laughs> but of course, the suckered is exactly the word. Um, I just had, a... I I sent a screenplay off to a, to a. Um, to an agent who I very much admire as an agent he, he'd appeared on uh, I'd seen him on TED talks and was very impressed it didn't actually end up with him it ended up with one of his assistants who ironically is, is Stephen Gallagher's daughter <laughs> and she was able to take her revenge by rejecting the script uh, that she'd invited me to send in um, she rejected it uh, with a wonderful kind of anonymity and and a, a boilerplate um, response, which didn't even suggest she'd managed to read the thing, but um, so, so that added to the poignancy of it. Uh, yes, I mean I think screenplays are a bit of a hiding to nothing, but I do I absolutely love the form. I, I adore movies, and I love the form of a screenplay, and I love the uh, again, it's a bit like a tweet. Uh, the the dialogue, indeed, you know, the page of a movie needs to have lots of white space and very few characters on it. And if you can develop your, 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 your dramatic characters and through their dialogue and through descriptions of what they do, but writing hardly anything, this is really exciting. This is, it's a wonderful way of, of putting a, a piece of art together. The catch with movies is they are so bloody expensive to make. So um, my next movie idea, which was uh, actually a rewrite of a script that I had written uh, as, as, a, uh, as a movie script um, some years ago before I really understood what movie scripts are about, I'm actually adapting it now as a stage play because I think these things are much more doable. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm, I'm still very keen on, on, on writing. because the thing about a writer is you have to bloody write. I mean, you, you, you can't just live comfortably and then pick up, the, pick up the MacBook Air from time to time and have a bit of a fiddle on it. You have to devote at least four hours a day to getting the stuff done. And I'm, I'm afraid I'm not doing that at the moment. But I will be quite soon.
0: Well, I should prevent you from doing so. Uh, <laughs> uh, I should stop preventing you from doing so because um, I've exceeded uh, my time anyway. So. Um, the, no, the,
1: Toby, the... you haven't. Absolutely, haven't exceeded your time. Well, bless a you. Delight yeah. to have you here. Well,
0: bless you. You've been very hospitable. I do appreciate it, especially as we we hastily convened this yesterday. Um, so th- this is this is a question that might not have as straightforward an answer as it normally does. That. Um, uh, I, at this juncture, ask my victims to nominate a charity.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, um, my, my wife works for a, a charity called the, the, uh, the Anna Freud Centre. So if I were to nominate one, that would be it. But I, I find myself very antithetical, is that a word? Can you say that? Mm-hmm. To, to the idea of charities. I think that in a properly organised society... Where you had a government, you elected a government, you paid a government to govern you and and to do the stuff that needed to be done socially. Uh, there would be no need for charities. We shouldn't have these damn things. There are there are um, there are carbuncles on on the face of what should be a you know a, 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 a democratic society. Um, should we be taxed more and that money? Given well, to yes, a, yes, yes. I mean, it's it shouldn't be up to me whether w- w- whether children starve in in the slums of Leeds, for example. I mean that that should be taken care of, and and the government should come to me and say, look, come on, pitch in for this, and I obviously uh, I then do. But uh, uh, what do I know about how the flow of money works through these charities? We're starting to learn some quite dodgy stuff about one or two of the charities which I won't mention, uh, either intentional or unintentional, um, how do you know what's happening to your money? I'd much rather trust, well, this is very unfashionable to say this these days, but I think I'd much rather trust it to to a government bureaucracy to sort this stuff out than, than uh, some, some ad hoc charity.
0: You, um people who disagree with you would were, would probably use the word nanny state then and say that you're mm. expecting the state to tell us what to do for our own good uh, in a way that indeed uh, I was interested I was looking in my lead up to Christmas, I went to a friend's house and he showed the trailers for what was on Christmas 1988, Christmas 1989, The on BBC2 was uh, a ballet, an opera. Had an arts programme, and we went, wow, that's what BBC Two was in 1988, <laughs> when the BBC decided what was good for you. Mm, and mm. I have to say, I don't mind that, because I don't think I'm as clever as I should be, and I don't know as enough as I should be, and I do think it's the responsibility of a state broadcast to say, this is actually good for you. This is healthy programming in the way that we say, this is healthy food. But people who disagree with me would say I'm being terribly patronising and saying that I'm therefore saying people should be told what's good for them in terms of...
1: Art in one that's, way uh, that's, that's very interesting I never thought of it like that but there's a strong parallel to what happened to IBM um, in, in, its, in the great days of IBM IBM was a bunch of guys who knew the technology uh, they had salespeople who went out into the world and uh, talked to business people about what their businesses were about and then they went back and talked to their technologists and they said right, what this business needs is this particular piece of kit and this particular software. And we will just go and we will sell it to them, or rent it to them. Uh, And then IBM got into the fashion of listening to its customers. Now, of course, the customers know about their businesses, but they don't know anything about what the technology can do for the business. They're very myopic when it comes to things like that. Um, So uh, that's when IBM, I think, started to go downhill.
0: well, that was a more interesting answer than, uh, and, and I would expected. no less from the way today has gone uh, to the normally very straightforward uh, question about the charity. So the final question that is a horrible one that I pants on everybody just because I did in my first interview nearly a year ago today and it seemed like a good idea at the time and I've regretted it ever since but hey-ho. Um, I'm a Doctor Who fan, it has to be uniform. Uh, Doctor Who is 50 years old this year um, which is what has prompted me to do this ludicrous task. This podcast is listened to by Doctor Who fans. What is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there who still love the show after 50 years on air?
1: Oh my god, my message to them. My message to them, get a life. That's (laughs) it.
0: I shall go searching for one now, but before I do, uh, I've had a very jolly time, and and thank you very much for giving me time at such short notice. Christopher H. Moore, thank you very much.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Toby. That was great. Yes, so I've lost
0: a whole bunch of fans. I <laughs> <laughs> My thanks to Chris, who's given you a get out clause, but he did mention that his wife works for a charity, so um, if you disagree with him about giving to charity, um, and I think you should because uh, you haven't paid for this, uh, the Anna Freud Centre, which is a charity for um, young people with me- mental health issues. Uh, you can find that at AnnaFreud.org, which is A-N-N-A-F-R-E-U-D, AnnaFreud.org. Um, but, as I say, uh, he's given you a get-out clause. If you choose to listen to him, then of course you are welcome to, as always. No pressure. That's it. That's um, that's that's the last interview I recorded bar uh, the Stephen Moffat one, which I did a couple of days after the one you've just heard, but that was released last Christmas as a Christmas present for you. So what am I going to give you now? Well, I was I, I carried on. I've carried on doing Who's Round. Um, I had a bit of time off, not long, and then there were a few people who'd agreed to do it who I'd missed and a few people I tracked down late, and then I just sort of carried on pootling along. Um... So, but I haven't quite finished giving you the interviews that were recorded in 2013, of course, because the much requested Russell T Davis interview is not over yet. I was going to save it right to the end, uh, you know, to end the series on on a high, but um, I don't want to get too out of date. Uh, So between now and however many... um, additions it takes probably two or three more um, we're going to get right to the end of the Russell T Davies interview which should take you up to Christmas um, or certainly in the lead up uh, and uh, then we'll see what, so then I'm going to have to find somebody really special to end the series with when I eventually get to that but you've got a good 50 or so interviews with oh, everyone from Mr Ollis to the Watcher and various people in between uh, and I'll be whacking those out uh, as regularly as these ones will be going out, uh, thanks to Ian Atkins. So, yes, um, Russell T. Davis up next. Uh, thanks for listening to all these runs in 2013. Uh, it's, it's been a blast, and it will continue bl- blasting. OK, bye.
1: The 21st century is when everything changes and we're ready. Obviously. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions Torchwood, One Rule. I'm standing on an invisible lift and I'm about to enter Torchwood 3. Hooray! You must be Torchwood then. It's the murders, you see. There's been five in the last two weeks.
0: Well, murders?
1: That's what the police are for. Oh, I thought you might help me. Oh, bless you, but
0: no. I'm from London. I don't do local politics.
1: Good night.
0: I run a top-secret organisation that protects all of Great Britain from invasion. I have tea with the twice a week. I'm trying to keep you alive and you're behaving like children. In fact, I've had enough of this city. Oh, oh, Can everyone get
1: out! Big Finish. We love stories. Oh, oh, happy day.